Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. I wanted to kick off the show today by encouraging you to ask me anything. Uh, nerds like me who live online know the old acronym AMA, Ask Me Anything. I want to take your questions, and the best way to do that is to email your questions, hello at wisequirrels.com, and just leave me the questions in the email, or you can also hit me on social media, or you can also record an audio comment with your question, and I will make sure to include your audio comment and question on a future episode when I answer your question. I also want to make sure to give a shout out to those of you who have reached out to me already. Your emails, uh, your public reviews, your messages, this all means the world to me. It really does. I've heard from many people who have said how much they're enjoying the show, how much they're finding what I'm doing here at Wise Squirrels really helpful, both on the blog, on the website, at wisequirrels.com, but also in the podcast. And I really do want to say thank you so much if you have been, if you are one of the people who have reached out. It's also interesting to hear from other old friends, uh, personal friends, mainly on Facebook. I've, I've received a lot of messages from uh, old friends and that's been especially impactful for me as well. Uh, they've also shared uh, their diagnosis with ADHD or their family's diagnosis. And it's been really rewarding to hear from you. And as I said, these, these messages that you send me, I really do want to encourage you to reach out because they really do mean the world to me. Uh, they, they help keep me going, uh, doing this podcast, as you know, or you might know, I don't make money from this show. Um, I would like to, that would be great help cover some of the costs. <laughs> um, but that's not my intention here uh, right now, at least. Uh, perhaps I will create a Patreon one day. Perhaps I will uh, bring on some advertisers or sponsors to help uh, cover the cost of the show. Um, I'm open to those ideas, by the way. So if you are uh, curious about that, also reach out to me. So just before Christmas, I received a planner. It's a 13 week planner. So I received the planner and it came in this like really swanky box. It was really nice. And it came with a, a little booklet to explain how to fill out the planner and links to videos that you can watch to better understand how to use all this stuff to help you organize uh, your life. It's, it's cool because it has like three projects to work towards. And then it breaks down over 13 weeks in order to accomplish those three big projects. 
And I received this at the beginning of December and I never used it. And then it occurred to me a couple of years ago, a friend sent me his, which is, uh, it's a beautiful book, uh, a lot more elegant, uh, lots of inspirational quotes. It was a different format, but also a planner at the end of the day. And guess what? I never used it. I carried it with me everywhere. I remember specifically sitting on a train and, and waiting and, and thinking through like, how should I fill it out? And then flipping through the pages and reading the quotes. But I never even wrote my name in the book. And nor did I do that in the new one. I was perplexed and frustrated. Why am I not using these? So I met with my therapist recently and I brought the book, uh, the new one along with me. And I handed it to her and she looked through it, flipped through the pages. She's like, oh, this is great. Yeah, this is really well done. And then I asked her, I've had this for weeks. Why haven't I used it? Like, what is stopping me? And I explained about the other one as well from a while back. And she laughed totally supportively and said, Dave, that's not how your brain works. It's okay. Planners are not for you. In that moment, I'm like, wait, what? Like, I have permission not to use a planner? I'm, I'm okay. This isn't for me. It was so funny because I never occurred to me. Instead, I think, ah, why can't I use this? What's wrong with me? And I get all frustrated, but talking to her, I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, you're right. This isn't for me. And it felt so good to realize, wait a sec, I don't need to use planners. I have other ways to, to stay organized. It's not that I'm not organized. I, you know, I get, I get the work done. My clients are always happy. My family's happy. Everything's okay. I show up on time for meetings. I will be the first to admit that without my calendar and without setting reminders, without some of the software that I use for my email, yeah, I, I would be a mess. Definitely. That's not to say that I'm perfect. I, I certainly am a mess. <laughs> Just uh, just take a look at the planners that I've never used. Something else that came from that conversation as we dug a little deeper into why I don't use the planners, I learned that the reason why I don't use the planners is because it takes a lot of time to figure out how to use them, to watch the videos and to read the guidebooks and to actually sit down and focus on filling it all out. And probably a little bit of, well, what if I do it wrong and I've ruined the book? But it all comes down to becoming overwhelmed. And that's what I wanted to mention to you today. Some tips on how to handle the feeling of being overwhelmed. And of course, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. You know the drill. So always talk to your doctor first, but this is what I have found works well for me. So in no specific order, the first is meditation and mindfulness. The second is to break big projects into small chunks. The third is rewarding myself. The fourth is visualizing the end. The fifth is manifesting the future. The sixth is keeping a daily journal. The seventh is blocking my calendar. The eighth is giving myself some grace. And the ninth is getting help from friends 
or outsourcing when needed. That's nine. I should have had 10. Sorry. Without spending time here today digging into each of these uh, areas, I just wanted to share these nine tips with you. I talked a little bit more about them in the video that I posted over on TikTok and YouTube, so you can always check those out if you'd like to hear more about this. Also, if you have questions about any of these things or you'd like me to dig a little deeper and go into these points, I'm more than happy to do that. Again, just email me, hello at ysquirrels.com or hit me on social media or you can also record an audio comment and you can do that by going to the podcast page at ysquirrels.com slash podcast. Today, I'm speaking with educator, certified wellness counselor, life coach, and ADHD coach, Mateus Ashton, who runs his coaching practice at mateusashton.com. I began our conversation by asking Mateus about his unique origin story. Well, I was born in Brazil uh, back in the 80s, and I was adopted when I was four by uh, Americans and uh, grew up in America. Grew up in specifically Ohio, uh, Columbus, Ohio, mm. and uh, and was kind of deep into, uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD at six, and was deep into psychology and trying to understand myself pretty early on. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I struggled with, uh, being diagnosed at six and in the nineties, I was part of the big wave of diagnoses after Ritalin, uh, kind of became a huge thing. Um, so I was part of that. Fortunately, while there was a lot of over, over diagnosing at that time, I was one of the accurate diagnoses, diagnoses. And, uh, and I learned that I have ADHD from that point. Um, and, uh, then I grew up with, uh, the very typical ADHD struggles, uh, of, um, uh, Medic, trying to find the right medication, trying to adjust for sleep, trying to uh, manage schoolwork, and uh, then realized when, once I had Psychology 101 that I was like, oh, this is a career I, I that seems fit for me. I can understand myself and help other people understand themselves, and and then kind of uh, went to university for that, and really struggled with my ADHD in the univer in university. I'll be honest with you, I uh, I was un unmedicated at the time. I had gotten off medication, and when and university kind of showed me that I couldn't willpower my way through this as mm -hmm. much as I wanted to. So I got back on medication, and then ended up, and then graduated. Um, went off medication for nine years after that. Um, again, thinking that I could will my way through it, and uh, started off in the field. Um, got a little disillusioned with the field uh, from insurance companies and then got into film work. Realized I needed uh, more, uh, needed needed a lot more focus and went back on medication and realized, you know what, I'm that's two times enough of trying to willpower it. It's it's not happening. Hmm. Um, I need more strategies. I need more, more structure. I need more systems. And uh, went off to film school and realized that while I enjoy art, it's I kind of missed my psychology work. And I now, um, and I, and I had someone tell me, Hey, have you ever thought about being a coach? I had my therapist at the time tell me that the things that I, the way I talk about ADHD is the way that she uses it to talk to other people about it. And, mm -hmm. um, I was like, well, it's not, and she was like, I have a natural way of talking about this and I already want to be in, I already want to kind of get back into psychology. So I never really thought about coaching uh, up until then, but then she said, have you tried uh, looking into ADHD coaching? So I did, and I became trained in the um, ADCA school for ADHD coaching, and uh, like literally within two weeks of it, I fell in love immediately, and now 
It's my entire practice. I, I, I'm a therapist and uh, like a wellness counselor and a ADHD coach. And um, I have a couple clients in, uh, in, uh, in counseling, but most of my practice is entirely ADHD and I love it. It's, it's my life now. Um, so uh, that's a long story short, maybe long, but the, <laughs> no, no, but that's my, that's my, that's my story right there. No, it's a, it's a great story. And I think, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, you know, I don't really know besides really stuff in pop culture, but like, as far as Ritalin goes, what's the verdict on Ritalin? Was it like sort of, I mean, uh, there was obviously, as you mentioned, like a lot of, a lot of kids being diagnosed and, and treated with Ritalin back in the, uh, yeah, eighties, uh, maybe early, I don't even know, early nineties maybe, but, uh, What's the verdict? Do we know? Was it good? Was uh, well, it bad? Was it over over prescribed? Was it like what? What are? Yeah, I don't know well, a lot about it. Definitely, it's a lot like Prozac. Hmm. Um, when Prozac came out, it became a quick fix drug for a lot of people, where they'd go to the therapist and then they would get Prozac and then they they would feel better because Prozac is an SSRI and it, it puts more serotonin in your system, so people feel better. But then they don't. Uh, so then everyone started saying, "Well, if you have a bad mood, just take some Prozac," and it became what is colloquially dubbed Prozac Nation, so to speak. Mm. So a very similar thing happened with Ritalin, where oh, you have a child who has uh, who's acts out and has all this en- uh, excess energy. Well, maybe they have ADHD, and then they can get prescribed Ritalin. And so the idea of being able to manage people's children a lot easier with a drug became very popular. Uh, mm. And uh, everyone started getting diagnosed with ADHD, even if they didn't have ADHD. Irritable children started wanting this Ritalin, wanting Ritalin, wanting Ritalin. Not the children, but the parents wanting mm. to heal their children, so to speak, or give them a drug to make their parenting easier. Yes. And this ended up being a bit of a, a, a ended up backfiring. And a lot of people who don't actually have ADHD and were just rambunctious kids got diagnosed with a disorder. And 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 then they have to live with with that and, uh, and challenging that. So over towards the end of the '90s, uh, we started becoming a lot more strict on who diagnoses and who and who gets it and who doesn't. The mm. criteria became a little bit more strict. So that problem kind of got weeded out. Um, but that's kind of what happened in the, in the '90s. Ritalin was a super like a super drug for for ADHD, and it was one of the most powerful drugs at the time for ADHD. And people started seeing it as like a quick fix for their 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 difficult child. Hmm. And that unfortunately had a huge kind of uptick in diagnoses. And by the end of the nineties, that was smoothed out, but that's what ended up happening with Ritalin. No, thank you. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Nowadays it's, it's an iPad. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Your kid's too talkative <laughs> at the restaurant, hand them an iPad. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It drives me crazy. I didn't know th- the story there, but of course, yeah, uh, as I mentioned, like pop culture culture and things like that. I mean, certainly Ritalin is, has been mentioned. Most people are at least aware of it. So with your, with your background, as far as your clients go, are they late diagnosed adults like myself? Are they more like kids? I know you've also worked with, uh, in, in, in serving and helping with, uh, drug addicts, uh, recovering addicts, I should say. Uh, tell me a little bit about about that and and who you serve. Well, um, there's a high prevalence of addiction in the ADHD community. Mm. Um, there's it's being chasing dopamine and chasing um, stimulation. Well, uh, drugs give a lot of stimulation, so mm. uh, it can be very tempting for a lot of ADHDers. But 
Yeah, I uh, my clientele goes across the board. I've dealt with people who are in, like you mentioned earlier, in their in their sixties, and uh, and then they're they're learning about this uh, for the first time. And to be honest with you, the biggest difference between the two uh, clients, like people who find out in their twenties or teens, or someone who finds out later, is the uh, the biggest kind of difference I've noticed is the. Um, the reconciling with the amount of time that has been spent without understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's drastically different recognitions. When they're in their 20s, they're looking back at like their teen years or their 30s, they're looking back at their 20s um, at like what they could have done and the resentment and the and the, the what could be's and the what ifs and all that stuff. And the thing I've noticed the most is that when they're older and they're coming to terms with this, there's just a lot more of, of coming to terms with to be had. They're not coming to terms with just one decade. They're coming to terms with possibly five decades of their life unregulated and unmanaged. And that's that's a tough toll for anyone to kind of have to have to deal with. So that's a lot of the work I do with people that are that are older and diagnosed. We have to kind of work through the emotions there. And that's why I'm more of a mental health coach uh, that specializes in ADHD than, than just a straight life coach who kind of only deals with like the practical stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are some of those strategies to help folks like that? Because I, and you know, asking selfishly for myself at 50 with ADHD, just having learned, well, 51 now, but having learned this year. Yeah. I mean, there's some, there's some, there's generally considered to be three kind of adaptive ways to responding to our emotional struggles. And that's uh, acceptance, problem solving, or reappraisal or reframing. And, um, that I think those are kind of the best strategies to do towards this. You can't, it's hard to problem solve the past. So it, it's difficult to do that, but something we can do is accept the past, uh, for what it was and also reframe it as instead of something that a lot of lost opportunities, we can reframe it in a way that's a bit more kind to us and say, that's actually, that, that's where we were at that time. And that's what we were struggling with. We only had the tools that we had at our disposal. And now we have different tools. So uh, we can look at it with a bit more compassion and forgiveness mm. to ourselves for not knowing these things. Because a lot of times, especially the older you are, these resources just weren't there. They didn't exist. There wasn't a colloquial acceptance towards ADHD. So if you if you get diagnosed in your 60s and realize that uh, for 50 years you didn't uh, you weren't uh, you were operating um, as a teenager at least trying to um, trying to manage in the world and all these opportunities you could have had. Well, you grew up in a time where that wasn't also a prevalent thing on everyone's radar. So there wasn't a lot of resources there where today, like you can go to ADD.org and find over 20 support groups mm-hmm. that are relatively inexpensive to join that support ADHD. And, and there are tons of strategies there. Those just didn't exist a long time ago. So it's like we can, if we put some perspective and context there, we can start to practice forgiveness and uh, acceptance towards the fact that we only we were only ever doing what we had what was in our power to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you know when I reflect on things a lot in my life, you know, most I would say most of my 20s certainly, probably earlier and even later, uh were spent in in bars. Uh mm-hmm. mainly like kind of punk rock bars in Toronto and mm-hmm. I was very much kind of in that sort of scene and 
uh, it's interesting now because you know when I, I, I I've joked here before on the show that I kind of came out of the mental health closet as it were uh, you know when I <laughs> when I was diagnosed and and you know so I posted on Facebook and wrote an email newsletter and a blog post and so on just kind of sharing with friends and 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 folks you know that my my diagnosis and I I heard from a lot of people on Facebook privately uh, from friends from back then who were like, you would be maybe surprised or maybe not surprised to learn just how many of us have ADHD. And I think there's so, I don't know with the correlation between sort of, uh, the, the sort of punk rock ethos, uh, and the, the defiance, the creativity, the, the talent, uh, certainly addiction, you know, uh, going around, yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting to learn that, and then you know, even doing research, digging into like some of my the artists that I listen to most, like Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys and Henry Rollins from yeah. Black Flag, and oh, yeah. Ian Mackay from Minor Threat and Fugazi, and all these all these incredible talented artists who have all come out years later, some earlier than others, uh, talking yeah. about their their ADHD diagnosis. Definitely, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean. ADHDers grow up, uh, the neurodivergent community grows up in a neurotypical world. Mm. Um, so the world is not built for us. Uh, it is built for neurotypical people. Um, mm. And with that comes, okay, well, there's a bit of a rebellion kind of thing. It's like, all right, well, you're not built for me, so I don't want to do what you're doing. I want to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of, a lot of alternative uh, alternative kind of cultural thing uh, things feel very uh, resonating for a lot of ADHDers because those are counterculture pe- things. And and the cult, the culture right now isn't necessarily embraceive of neurodivergence. So countercultures embrace a lot of different things, a lot of a lot of uh, the nuances, the niches of things. So it makes a lot of sense to me that people who are like, hey, there's not a spot for me here, um, like the punk movements of, of the retaliation against kind of, um, I mean, we can get into the history of punk music of, of Reaganism and a lot of other stuff there. Mm. Um, but that kind of resistance towards uh, a lot of that, that, that kind of order and structure um, makes a lot of sense for ADHDers because they're, they're often struggle with order and structure. So going a bit uh, more of the chaotic route is a, a route that would feel very emotionally validating. I would imagine for a lot of ADHDers. Yeah. I think a big part of it and, you know, I, I've developed, uh, I do a lot of, presentations. I'm a, a speaker and performer. And so I created this presentation since being diagnosed, sharing kind of what I'm learning and, and sort of my own experiences. I call it the root down. And it's it's kind of a process that I've been sharing on on my background. And really the the, the purpose of it is really to help remove stigmas, obviously, about it, but also to educate people and also, you know, empower those who feel that, oh, wait, maybe these these symptoms or traits kind of fit me. Maybe I should go see a doctor, my doctor, and, and learn, you know, maybe I do have ADHD or maybe my kids do. And, and, and you know, and that often the case is uh, is that you do too, possibly. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. But part of that presentation, I talk about, you know, finding your people and finding community and, and certainly with the loneliness epidemic that has uh, been, you know, rampant, especially you know, during the pandemic and, and even before that, really, that in the sort of punk rock world, there was this like kind of very accepting community 
who accepts just about anyone as long as you're not yeah. a jerk <laughs> and even some jerks, I guess that it becomes sort of a family, I guess, if, if you will. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean that culture, counterculture thing. It makes sense that you find a lot of connection with that. I did the same thing. I went into, uh, I didn't go in, into punk, but I went into metal and mm. prog rock and uh, prog metal and like dream theater and mm-hmm. um, and yes and a lot of that kind of stuff and found people who are counter clash uh, there counter cultures there and I connected with that so I I also had a bit of a phase where I I wanted to be around people who are a little bit more comfortable being a little different than the, than what people expected yeah and that's actually I still feel better that way I, I when I'm yeah. around people that just. That I, I, it actually just happened today. I, I went to a meeting, uh, just group of people, kind of networking thing. And a couple of the people that I met were so stereotypical in this kind of industry, I guess. And I just cringed. I'm like, oh, these people are so fake, man. Like, just, I mean, like, just be authentic. Like, just be honest. And, and they're yeah. just so incredibly fake that it just kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> and you're you're a big you're you're into film too and you actually i remember oh yeah talk let's talk a little bit about that because uh, like what were the were there connections to your own like uh, adhd uh, as it applies to to filmmaking uh, because i'm a big film nerd film fan as well um and have dabbled but not really anything seriously sure um like filmmaking for me was um I have a very personal connection with with film. For me, growing up as an ADHDer and and having a lot of emotional dysregulation and struggles in my teen years, uh, film was a way for. And I'll get a little, little, a little uh, more heavy here. Film was a way for me to kind of experience my emotions in a way that's a bit more regulated. Um, so instead of uh, feeling like I don't fit in in a lot of places growing up. With film, I could I could uh, safely go into areas of of, uh, of difficult emotion or difficult story, and uh, since I'm watching a film and it's not really happening in front of me, hmm. I can I can experience that emotion in a bit of a safer way. Um, so film was a it was a bit of a kind of a place where I could I can open up and truly feel all of those intense feelings and intense passions and all that kind of stuff without without necessarily having people around me. Um, judging that or thinking it's too much. And that's a common thing for ADHDers is, am I being too much mm. or am I not, am I not being enough for, am I not paying attention enough? Am I not engaged enough or am I engaged too much and it's too intense for other people? That's a big complication that a lot of ADHDers can develop. And I, I was, I, I definitely had that. So film was a way for me to experience emotion and intrigue and story without having to worry about what other people thought of it. Um, and I could deep dive into that. And then when it came to, that's one of the reasons why sci-fi is a big thing for me. I love sci-fi. It's mm. my biggest, my favorite genre because it allowed that interest component to kind of just, just flourish. And I, my, my mind was just like a constant, like, like wheel churning of ideas. And, and then I get excited and I could be excited and super passionate and no one was going to judge me for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and actually, if you talk to other people who loved sci-fi, you could get just as interested in it. And they're like, yeah, it's fantastic. So it was a wonderful kind of uh, way for me to kind of find my own tribe, so to speak, or my own my own uh, my own group of people. Yeah, for me. Um, so, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Go on. No, well, I was going to say and then I 
I had someone who I was so into film. I was writing scenes, uh, doing psychological work at rehab centers. And during breaks, I would sit there and write scenes and stuff. And someone told me, why aren't you trying to make any films? And I was like, I don't know. I had a lot of lack of confidence back then. And mm. someone said, it's good enough to make something. And then I tried it. And and then it became, it was a bit of a ADHD wonder where ever I was getting feedback loops everywhere. Like I get interested and then I would do it and then I would write a script and then someone else would give me feedback and then I would get more interested and then engaged and then I would have to learn all these new skills. I'd have so much novelty, novelty, novelty. And I was like, oh, this is what art is. It's taking your exper experience and putting it out there and being vulnerable for people to see. And that felt very captivating. Uh, over time, I realized it wasn't my career path and psychology was, but it was something that allowed me to, before I came to it, to allow myself to express my emotions on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And now I could show people my emotions on my own terms. And that's what filmmaking turned into for me. Yeah, it's interesting with the uh, with the filmmaking side. Like I've done, like I, again, I, I I wouldn't consider myself like a filmmaker per se. Although you know, I like noodling around, shooting short videos, and but I love like the the whole editing process. I always found yeah. r just riveting. You know, where a lot of uh, you know, in, in sort of the zeitgeist these days, you hear you know. Uh, you hear uh, flow, like everybody, you know, you try to get into flow when you're working and you try to get into your <laughs> flow state. And I'm like, dude, I have ADHD. That's not a problem if it's something I'm into, right? Where like editing video, it's suddenly like eight hours later, you've been sitting in a video booth editing videos and, and the time just flies by. And uh, so, so yeah, the world, the world of film has been something interesting to me. And, and I was going to say like, like you with sci-fi, I was more into like horror movies growing up and Definitely. my best friend as a kid. And one of my best friends still today, you know, we went to like Fangoria's weekend of horrors conference in Toronto and, yeah, and we definitely. met like, like, uh, you know, Tom Savini and like all these like makeup artists and stuff. And it was like, Oh, it was like the coolest, the coolest thing, but like finding community around, you know, Toronto is such a big film city. And, uh, I used to live practically in a video store called suspect video. I would go there like every day I'd rent movies. And so they all knew me really well. And, and, uh, they would rent out movie theaters to do screenings. Um, uh, side note tangent here. They rented, they got their hands on, uh, drunken master Two, the junk, the Jackie Chan Ooh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. old martial art film. And the part two is the best one. And the only theater they could find was this porn theater. Uh, <laughs> so, which was functioning as an adult theater, but they rented it out for like a day or two. And so yeah. there was a lineup. We were there for the nine o'clock showing. There's a lineup of people waiting to go in. There's a seven o'clock showing too, uh, uh, to go in. So like, I'm sure people driving by are like, whoa. That must be a great porn. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, and when the first screening lets out, it's Quentin Tarantino and Mia Servino come out of the theater and we're like, no way. Like it was just such a yeah. cool, yeah. It's such a cool, freaky, wonderful world, like filmmaking. So, um, oh, I agree. Yeah. Are, do you find like a lot of your clients, uh, are more, do they come from sort of a creative background? Like what, are there commonalities there? Things that you see? Um, yeah, I think there are some. I think it's difficult. Well, there's a, there's a there's a 
economic sh uh, struggle here uh, when mm. it comes to really talking about this is that a lot of artists who might need it don't have the income to afford it. Mm -hmm. um, so the the artists I do have are usually well-established artists. Mm -hmm. um, they're already working in Los Angeles. They're already screenwriters. They're already they're already editors. They're already um, and they're struggling with 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 um, with kind of managing the weight of it all um, in their creative endeavor. Um, but the unfortunate reality is a lot of the people who are struggling artists who maybe may have ADHD and um, and don't know what to do with it. Um, they unfortunately may not have the resources to be able to afford the treatment that that might be helpful for them. Mm. Um, so uh, because of that, the people that come to my doorstep, so to speak, end up being the more established artists um, and people who have the resources and funds to to get something like that. And that's um, and I try to give as much um, support as I can to people who uh, like I have a sliding scale to to uh, help that out. Mm. Um, but I do know that, uh, there's a, there's a simple reality that, uh, often if you're the, the typical starving artist, um, often if you're starving, you don't have, you don't like, this is the unfortunate reality of, of, of some bigger systems in our society that if you're, if you're struggling and starving and you might have mental health, uh, struggles, um, the starving part tend, will always take more priority mm -hmm. and the mental health, actual help and aid costs, it becomes a bit of a catch 22 is like you need the mental health aid and help, but you don't have the money for it. And to get the money, you need to do more work. But to do more work, you're struggling with mental health issues. And then it becomes just a bit of a struggle. So I've talked to a lot of a lot, in support groups that I've facilitated in workshops, which are more accommodating to uh, lower income individuals. I, I hear a lot of that. It's like I don't know how to get my head out of water to be able to to do the work I need to be able to make something out of this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So that ends up being a lot more of a struggle that I hear uh, than not. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. And it, it's, you know, I've, I've spoken to a number of other, you know, uh, ADHD coaches and therapists and so on, and, and, and just researching things on myself and learning about how, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned earlier about addiction, but like, in, in some cases, it's easier to get your hands on a highly addictive, dangerous stimulant than it is to get your hands on an actual prescription of something safe that's been diagnosed and prescribed. And, and it's cheaper even in some cases, I suppose, for people to get their hands on the, the wrong stuff. And that's, you know, I, I, I had a guest on, um, I don't know if we've aired that episode yet, but he was talking, I remember he was speaking about the prison population and how, how it's just so clear how many people in, in that are incarcerated have ADHD. And it was like that you can't completely blame ADHD necessarily, but at the same time, you know, it's a, it can be a wonderful thing, but you can make a lot of wrong decisions, uh, bad decisions because of the, you know, not being treated and so, uh, yeah. Um, and you worked a, a suicide prevention hotline for four years. Um, yeah, definitely. Are, are, were there correlations, things that you found there? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I was going to, uh, as you're talking about the prison populations, I had a thought in my head. I don't have any data around this, but, mm. um, off, off the top of my head, but, I would say the Venn diagram of people in prison and uh, and mental health uh, mental health struggles. I would say that's almost two overlapping circles 
Uh, like <laughs> the yeah. people who are in prison are often suffering from anxiety and, and depression and struggles. Even with, uh, even if they're for their own crimes that they committed, they might be dealing with 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 a lot of mental health struggles with with that kind of stuff. So that's a that's an underpopulated, uh, underserviced mental health in general. I would say is an underprioritized thing when, in society, like government and policy wise. And we can easily see that how a lot of uh, mental health struggles people have, they will put them into anonymous programs um, and uh, that are free for the community. Um, but if you actually get into a crime, uh, you get put into you, uh, a much more kind of a prison situation where you're supposed to have rehabilitation. But if it's just mental health, they don't really have places for you to go that are cost effective. So they give you to anonymous programs where even to own that that dysfunction you might have or struggle you might have, you have to do it in a way that's anonymous. Mm. So you can't even truly, there's not even a, even an accepting community within society to kind of really embrace that side of yourself. If you commit a crime and you might have mental health struggles, the mental health part of it is often neglected and shamed or not treated as if it's like just a common problem that happens. So I have okay. my own kind of agendas around that. So I, we don't have to go down that route if you don't want to, but no, I, I mean, I'm open to, yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's uh, often mental health is something that people, uh, this is my own kind of observation in society, hmm. is that people often look at mental health issues as something that you can do something about yourself. Um, and, uh, and if you're not doing something about it yourself, then it's your fault. It's you have to pick up your own, uh, your own self up and heal your depression, heal your anxiety. Um, it's your fault. There's a great book, The Power of Habit. Um, and in the back of that book, he talks about two different people um, who uh, who struggle with uh, with routine habits. One person uh, has a gambling addiction and gambles away their house. Um, and the other person um, uh, was has a sleepwalking problem and ended up killing their wife. Um, in one of their sleepwalking things, because they thought someone was a, was, they thought they were their wife was an intruder, mm. and then they 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 killed it. Both people um, said that they were they were blacked out at the, at the time. The person uh, who gambles said that they walked in the casinos and they were they blacked out. Mm. Um, they literally do not remember. Two days later, they come out of that, and uh, their whole house has been uh, sold to uh, put on the on the casino thing, and they've lost their house and their home, and they have no idea what happened. The other person blacked out because they were unconscious and asleep and killed their wife without even knowing it, woke up and were like, what the hell happened? I don't even know what happened. Hmm. Both people went to, went to trial. The jury sees the person who's asleep and was like, holy, holy man. Oh, man. I, I what, what if that happened to me? Hmm. I could I could see that. What would I, I don't I, I don't know what would happen if I woke up and I had done all those things. So I can understand why why that why that person isn't guilty because if that happened to me that would be a struggle and that person actually was not found guilty of murdering his wife, uh, murdering his wife. Flip it to the other person, the 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 casinos took that woman to jail for paying debts, not paying debts, and she was found guilty um, by the jury of her peers. And the author uh, Charles Duhigg in that book says, um, well, the culture believes when addiction, that's something that you should be able to do something about. Mm. They could, they put themselves in her shoes and they're like, well, I can get into casinos without blacking out. So why can't she enter casinos without blacking out? Mm. Um, and this is where the real issue kind of happens is when it comes to actual mental health conditions, 
society, when you put a jury of your peers in front of you, um, there isn't necessarily uh, a thinking like, oh, okay, I can see why why someone could lose control in that situation and not have the agency to to uh, handle it. Instead, it's, hey, I've also been drunk. I've gambled before, and I was able to get out of it, so why couldn't this person? Mm-hmm. Clearly, they don't have enough effort, energy, or motivation, or personality to get out of that. And that makes it very difficult for the person with a mental health condition to actually accept and embrace the fact that they're struggling in society when no one around them embraces that struggle. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's almost, it's partly a lack of, it, it, I guess, in part, it's a lack of empathy, but it's also a lack of, it's also kind of ignorance of, of just not even being aware of these of these symptoms or these things, right? Like if you don't know How what severe. it's like, yeah. Sorry? It gets way more severe. That's the severity yeah. of it. People know what it's like to want a drink of alcohol. They might not know what it's like to uh, lose consciousness and have blackout three-day benders where you have no idea what happened. Mm. They might know what it's like to blackout in college. And and it's like, oh, I blacked out. That's, that's, that's unfortunate. And I, I got drunk and threw up on people and everyone's angry at me. Mm. They don't know what it's like to do that every single week and to not be able to stop and have your whole life fall apart. Um, that's, they, they saw their own struggles and they're like, well, I did something about it. I grew out of it. Well, then why couldn't that person? Well, that person had different circumstances. They had different, uh, they had different stressors in their life. And, and had you had those stressors maybe maybe you wouldn't have pulled out, but they don't have those stressors. So it's harder. It's a little harder to put yourself in those shoes because there are lower levels of that situation happening that people can put themselves in those shoes. And they're like, well, I didn't go that far. Mm. I have the I have the willpower to do that. Why why didn't that person have the willpower to do that? And that's where the the limit of empathy kind of uh, is, can be seen at that point, where it's like, oh, okay, I can put myself in their shoes, but I can only extrapolate how far I would go in that situation, instead of seeing that situation and seeing the context in their lives and how, oh, if this was worse, maybe I would have also been worse at the same time. What are some of the um like some of the changes that you would like to see in like, if you, you know, the, the, let's say the genie in the bottle gave you three wishes, <laughs> Mateus, like, what would you, what would you uh, like to see granted uh, as it pertains to this stuff? Well, I, as it pertains to this stuff, I would see, say on a more of a systemic level, um, I, this is a big thing. Uh, education is one of my biggest kind of causes um, so I'm a big fan of psychoeducation, uh, trying to educate people of what's going on. Um, and right now, um, we teach people about, um, currently in, in the United States, we teach people about emotions. We teach people about, um, management strategies, but we don't necessarily have a systemic way to train people in emotional, uh, reactions and stability. Hmm. It's kind of, we give them the information and then it just kind of, well, figure it out, and I hope you do it. Um, and it's like, well, you need to take deep breaths here. You get told that when you're young and like take timeouts and do and take count to 10 and all that stuff. But you're just kind of expected to do it. And that's kind of hard for a lot of people hmm. uh, when they don't have a system there to do it. So I would ad- advocate change, uh, adjusting the uh, education system currently right now towards something that's a bit more um, practically uh, – useful for emotional management. Uh, I say this because emotional management is one of the fastest things. If you can bring awareness to that, 
you can often prevent a lot of cognitive spiraling, a lot of a lot of the the other kind of uh, rumination and, and avoidance and other things that happen if you can quickly be aware of the situation as it comes up and then be able to manage it and use uh, use strategies to to augment your reality um, faster and faster and faster. So the faster we can get people doing that, the less we have people being angry at each other, the mm. more compassion we have, and the more um, emotional responsibility we have as a society. So I think that's a, a big thing, because for ADHDers, pull this into our topic of the day, ADHD, mm-hmm. ADHDers have a lot of big emotion and, and difficult uh, managing that emotion. So if everyone is more attuned to everyone else's emotional capacity, and emotional understanding, then we have a lot more compassionate and empathetic environment when people might be a bit more dysregulated. We can see them as someone who is struggling with something instead of a problem in society that that they need to be managed in some way, shape, or form. Instead, that's just someone who is struggling and we need they need their support. And with that comes systemic, uh, not just education, but also systemic support on an insurance and um, financial level. Right now, medical uh, things are covered often and uh, are, are covered in medical plans, but therapy and coaching are not. Hmm. Now, I understand why coaching isn't because it's not regulated. I, I am for the regulation of coaching, specifically mental health coaching and ADHD coaching. But so I understand why insurance companies don't tack, don't offer and connect with coaches. But I think there could be a path to changing that 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 would be beneficial for everyone involved. So we can we can start truly treating therapy as a bit more of a need. I, I want to throw dental and vision into this. I've always been very surprised why mm. uh, those end up being extracurricular things, but people need to eat and people need to see. So uh, I've always yeah. found that be strange, but mental health is another thing that, that seems to be neglected and put off to the side where I think having a systemic support would allow people to feel, oh, when I feel sad or I feel depressed or I feel like I can't handle it, my society and community has, a, has a, already a path for me to seek help without judgment and without going bankrupt just to try to help myself. Yeah. And you touch on dental there too. And there, you know, there's direct or at least believe direct correlations between dental health and mind health and even, you know, the possibility. And again, not a, not a medical professional here. Um, but I do have a deep, uh, uh, interest in dementia and Alzheimer's and how uh, poor dental health can can certainly contribute uh, to that um, is something that I've been reading quite a lot about lately. Um, talk to me a little bit about mindfulness. I think meditation and mindfulness are, are two things that often get quite uh, misunderstood. I've had a daily meditation practice for really since the pandemic, but I dabbled before that, but I, I got more serious about it during that time. Um, and in my own sort of novice experiences here, I I kind of find that like mindfulness in a sense comes as a result of meditating. And a lot of people that I speak to who have attempted to meditate, you know, friends and so on, they just, they misunderstand, like, I can't focus on my breath. I think about something and that uh, doesn't work for me. So talk a little bit about that. Oh, I could, this is one of the branches of my work is mindfulness and, and meditation. So mm. this is a topic I love and I could talk about. Demystifying meditation is one of my passions. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, because I think it's kind of easy once you start once you get into it uh, to dem- demystify it. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about it. What it, what is the act of meditation? It is let's understand. I think it's helpful to understand that first, and that is um, to, to have a focal point um, and try to stay with that focal point. And when we get distracted from that focal point, uh, we bring our attention back to that focal point. Um, so that's from my understanding, meditation, that's kind of, uh, a broad stroke kind of, uh, definition there. Hmm. Uh, some people will use their breath as that focal point. Some people will use their body scanning as a focal point. Um, some people will use, um, body sensations as a focal point. Some people will use a flame or, or uh, a light or something in the distance as a focal point. They're all the uh, focal point and as something to focus on. Some people will use like a visualization in their head. To focus on that. Hmm. They're all kind of X. X, focus on X. And while you're focusing on X, um, your, your, your brain will naturally distract itself from that. Um, and when that happens, you kind of bring yourself back. And that's the act of practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. I w- one would, it might argue that without the distracting thought, you can't actually practice the, the act. <laughs> because the act of practicing meditation is returning yourself back to the focal point. And if you don't actually get distracted, then you have nothing to return yourself back to. Mm. So distraction is kind of, not kind of, it is built into it. It is part of it. We, our brains will naturally get distracted and that's perfectly okay. Um, Especially with radio students, it's it's gonna Mm. get distracted. So uh, knowing that we can um, practice letting go of it. And um, and then going back to our focal point, and we get a lot of resistances around that. We have a lot, a lot of people, a lot of parts of ourselves come up and say, "Oh, well, we're doing a bad job here. We're not doing this. We took too long doing that." But honestly, I like to demystify it by saying, it doesn't matter if if in the span of five minutes of meditating, if you got yourself only back to the breath once, you succeeded. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's as, as much as that. You could you could spend the whole five minutes lost in a thought, and at the end. When you hear like a gong or something and you go back to the breath and you just had that one couple seconds back in the breath, you still got back to it though. Yeah. Yeah. Still did it. Yeah. One revelation I had, uh, it was from a guided meditation, but it was that as you get the thought, let it play out like a movie, like instead of like Mm. letting it stop, letting it play out. And so like, for example, I might think like, oh, I've got to go pick up uh, my wife from work today in the car. And so I think that, and so I play it out in my head, like me getting in my car, turning it on, driving to pick her up. She smiles. I smile, kiss her, whatever she gets in the car. We drive home. Oh, that's it. And so it's over. So now I can get back, like just let it play out. And, and by learning to do this and giving myself permission to do this, it was like, Oh yeah, definitely. And that whole thought was like that whole little scene was just seconds. Like it wasn't even a minute. <laughs> it was, it's like, Definitely. it's played out. Oh, okay. Well, that's not that bad. That's not that hard. That's not that bad at all. Yeah. Um, have you heard of noting? No. Noting is a meditation technique. Um, that kind of does what you're talking about, uh, in a real, like a like, efficient way. It's a process of like, like what you're talking about there, uh, has some foundational kind of same similarities as noting in the sense that when something comes up, when we try to avoid it, it becomes often louder. Mm. Um, so it's like, don't avoid it. So what you're talking about is giving that some attention. So then it naturally just kind of exhausts itself. And mm. then you can kind of go back to the thought. 
So noting is a way to kind of cut that thinking kind of down a bit. So you note uh, while you're meditating and you have a distraction come up, like what is that distraction? Like I'm thinking about uh, argument I have with my partner. Okay, I'm no, you, in a noting situation could be once you catch yourself lost in that train of thought, you can say, oh, I'm thinking about that fight with my partner. Let's return to the breath. Hmm. That noting gives that thought the validation that it, it does exist. It is there. It is something. Hmm. But it's just something. And we can let go of it and let it be. Because uh, something that can happen um, if we just let it kind of run, run out is sometimes it can stir other thoughts and other feelings and other emotions. Hmm. And now that one thought piggybacks into uh 12 to 15 minutes of thoughts <laughs> and uh, and then and then it's hard to get out of that so noting can be a way to kind of like once we realize that we're there we can say oh okay i'm ta- i'm thinking about this let's go back to the breath so then we at least address the fact that it happened and later on when we're done with it we can look back okay i thought about this this and this do we need to address any of those things but we we don't allow it to kind of consume or uh, we put some boundaries around it to kind of make sure it doesn't become the breath of our entire meditation practice. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. What are some other thoughts and tips around around meditation and mindfulness? Sure. With uh, with ADHD, there's, there's a lot of them that I would say are can be effective in other places, but environment. What kind of, are you trying to meditate while sitting on a bench that's across a busy street? Not the easiest way of doing that. Uh, are you trying to meditate while you are at a baseball game? Not going to be the easiest thing to do because um, uh, meditation is inherently a low dopamine activity. So our brains may struggle with it. Hmm. So being able to have one coming from a high dopamine activity, it's our brains are going to struggle going into a low dopamine activity. So often it can be helpful if we're going to meditate, having that be one of the first things we do in the day because we haven't been inundated with a bunch of other dopamine to, to kind of want to maintain and chase and, and risk getting into hyper-focus like we, sometimes we can with our phones. Hmm. Um, so if we can do a meditation first in the morning um, before we get into that, then we can kind of, all right, we can kind of, then let's say we might work out afterwards. Now we're, we're, our dopamine levels are kind of building as the morning goes instead of picking up our phones early in the morning and then getting inundated with like Instagram or Reddit and then having tons of dopamine and then expecting ourselves to transition into a low dopamine act when our brain's like, no, I'm, I'm, I want to stay here with this high dopamine thing. Mm. So knowing when you're going to be meditating and what's happening before it will inform you as to what kind what mental state you're going to be in to be able to sit down and focus on your breath or whatever your focus point is, because that's actually quite a low amount of dopamine, just sitting in there focusing on your breath. This is so, so, not to interrupt. Yeah. Sorry, this is just no, such, no, no. You, this point is really good, and it, and it, I have found that this to work for me just like literally over the last like week or two weeks. Where in the morning now, um, I've got a kind of a crummy back, and I have stretches that right. I need to do, and I know I need to do, and I often neglect, and then end up paying for it later. So what I've been doing in the mornings now is I go into my office, and the, it's still dark in my office and I put the mat on the ground and I do like a 10 minute meditation and then I do my stretches and then I have my coffee. Like I reward myself with the coffee after that. Um, So to your point, because exactly to your, to what you were saying, I often do a lot of my, 
thinking when I'm walking the dog and, and what was where I was failing at this was taking the dog for the walk in the morning and then coming back to do what I just explained. And so often I'm so lost in thought that I get right to my computer and start doing the thing that I was thinking about. And then it's like, forget about it. It's not happening today. hundred percent. That brain wants to perpetuate the dopamine yeah. it was before. It wants to keep it going. Yeah. Great, um, great point. It'll do everything it can. Um, yeah, definitely. That's a, uh, that environmental kind of awareness of like, am I in the right space to do this? Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, starting off with, I think when people go into meditation, uh, uh, like kind of routines or stuff, they're like, how, how long should I do it for? And then they hear stuff like, uh, if you go to Vipassana, they recommend an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. That's uh, for an issue. It's like, you're asking me to sit still for two hours a day. Mm. I can't sit still for five minutes, uh, let alone two hours. Mm. So, uh, and so then there's like, there's uh, transcendental meditation, which recommends 20 minutes uh, twice a day. Um, but I say uh, studies have shown that three minutes or more are benefit can have great benefit for ADHDers. But I'll go as far as to say that if you can just sit for a minute, that's, that's better than nothing. Um, and if you can try to get into a habit of just doing that for 60 seconds, you can do that on the bus. You can do that in your car before you start it. You can do that kind of in transition points, like before you begin something, you got in your car and you're about to go somewhere. Uh, right when you, uh, get in the car, do a six, uh, a one minute, uh, just kind of breathing exercise. Or when you arrive at a place before you leave the car, do a one minute breathing exercise, a mm-hmm. uh, one minute meditation kind of thing. These little tiny moments where we can attach uh, systemic routines to can be very helpful hmm. where we're having, it's only a minute. How, how often can we fit a minute into our day? <laughs> so if we can do a minute, are we able to do five minutes? Once we can get used to doing a minute and get used to sitting there with low dopamine and get used to challenging the, those, those sh- struggling emotions that come up when we're trying to um, sit there for, for, quietly and, um, and solemnly um, we get used to that. Okay. Let's pressure that up and get used to five. Um, and, and then we can start building our actual meditation habit. Um, so I, just like with any uh, ADHD stuff, uh, if it's too overwhelming and, and abstract, break it down and make it uh, easier and more practical. What I, what I like to say is break it down to the smallest hurdle where it's almost ridiculous to not do. It's like, mm-hmm. can I do a minute? Come on, can I? I can do a minute. Come on, I can. Re- I can do a. Minute. I can really do a minute. Come on, it'd be ri- it'd be ridiculous if I couldn't do a minute. So right, let's right. do a minute, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I I, lo- I love that. It's it's really great advice. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, people people should definitely yeah give it give it a minute, give it a go. Tell me a little bit about uh, I I've been on the fence about TM uh, transcendental meditation only because I haven't flipped the bill on buying it, I'm paying for it. But it's something that I've been intrigued by. I have, I have friends who swear by it and, and being a film nerd, I love David Lynch and, and David Lynch is all over TM. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? I know my understanding, like you said, it's, it's two 20 minute uh, uh, meditations per day, which does feel like a lot to me a little bit, but, um, but also with a mantra and I don't really understand. And, and like in order to get to properly to do TM, you have to be assigned a mantra or something. Do you know about this? Yeah. Uh, so I got some personal and professional gripes with the T the transcendental meditation people. Mm. Uh, not, not people who practice it, but the people who run the organization around it. Mm. Um, I say that because 
with most meditation, Buddhist meditation, um, Hindu meditation, most of those avenues are free. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddhist specifically, like they, it's part of Buddhism to not charge people for meditation because of it is a gift to the world, so to speak. Um, so when someone takes that and then adds capitalism to it, I I'm like, okay, you're kind of this isn't this doesn't need to be charged, but uh, you require people to do it, and you won't train anyone else outside of that unless they pay you much of money, and that's perfectly fine. But I think it can it further mystifies something that is not that mystical. Mm. Um, like the actual thing of meditation is a specific act. Like I mentioned earlier, whether it be a, ma- a mantra, a, uh, a focal point of uh, having a mantra, having um, a breath, having a flame to look at, it's all it's all the same, just different focals. Some, things, some people uh, resonate better with using a mantra. Some people resonate better with using their breath. Some people resonate better with body scans. There's different results and you get different things out of each of them. But like to say that it's some thing that must only be done by specific people. I I don't know if I I buy all that. You can there are certain avenues right now on the Internet that you can find out exactly what happens in a transcendental meditation seminar. Mm. And and I've I've looked in these things and uh, they're not. I don't necessarily think that currently what I've understood of it, I don't necessarily think it needs to have. Uh, such pageantry wrapped around it. Hmm. I think that it's the pageantry keeps keeps um, keeps it mis- more mystical than it needs to be, and also uh, kind of reinforces the capitalistic nature that TM tends to have compared to all other meditation practices, hmm. where they don't really care about having money; they're just trying to provide a service. Um, and obviously, you can you can pay for people to teach you meditation. That's not my my, my point. My point is that. The, they act as if TM is this kind of like this golden uh, <laughs> golden goose that will give them will give everyone everything and and you can only do it if you go to these classes. It mm. doesn't if you do it anywhere outside of that. It does, it's not right. It's not true. Yeah. And I'm like yeah, that. I don't necessarily know if I agree with. Yeah, sort of a sunk cost fallacy where you pay yeah. you pay for it, and because you've paid for it, you're going to swear by it to everybody you know, and that okay. word will spread. Uh, as well. And it's meditation, so it probably is helpful. But it, I don't necessarily know if it needs to have that kind of restrictions around it, just to be helpful. Okay. It's, yeah. 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 All right. God bless America. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I know I, I, our time is just racing by here, and uh, yeah, this is this is. Do you mind if I really helpful? Say yeah. something on one last thing on meditation. Absolutely, please, please do. Um. So there's a lot of things you can do to help ADHD in general in life. But in my experience as a mental health practitioner, um, ADHD, uh, mental health coach and uh, a counselor, um, like if we understand what inattentiveness really is, and that is the thing in front of us isn't enough dopamine to engage the brain to turn on and activate it's all, all of the things that needs to activate. So the brain goes looking for, things that it can activate it. So you don't like doing the homework assignment, so your brain starts flooding things that would be more interesting, and then you go off and do that so then it can be engaged and, and continue going forward. So that is kind of the biology of what's happening in in, in, t- in attentiveness. And that's a pretty pretty co- uh, common aspect of ADHD. Uh, so inattentiveness and, uh, and the combined type. Even hyperactive people struggle with inattentiveness sometimes. Mm. Uh, so... Meditation is the only 
in my opinion, the only direct act where you are literally combating inattentiveness. Your brain tells you, hey, this is not enough dopamine. Go think about this over here. Like, go look at the fire truck. Kids in class, like, oh, a fire truck crossing the street. That's more interesting than this paper in front of me. Mm. Go pay attention to that. (laughs) Meditation, in my experience, is the only practice that trains the brain the skill of disengaging from the current thought. Like, we don't really have a built-in method to kind of train that skill. We often just follow the flow of consciousness and follow it and keep following it. This, the meditation is an actual, like, deliberate skill to train the brain to not follow it all the time. Mm. And now you can choose when you're going to follow it and not and build that muscle up. And that muscle needs worked out because it's never being worked out. It's constantly, oh, a thought goes into my head, I chase it. And I, another thought goes into my head, I chase that. Another thought, I chase it. Meditation is something that kind of pauses that and says, oh, I'm thinking this. That's okay. Let me disengage from that and focus on what I was supposed to be focusing on. Yeah. Which is kind of... If you look at it from an ADHD kind of thing, is kind of getting back on the task of an for an ADHDer. Hmm. So that meditation is actually strengthening that muscle in a very direct way, and that's one of the reasons why I think it, it, meditation is so helpful for ADHDers. Yeah, great point. And the mindfulness side of that comes as a result. Is that right? Because you're being mindful yeah, I mean, in the moment of distraction. Exactly. They're more aware of what's leading them to distractions. The more mindfulness they, the more the more awareness they are of their experience and able to make more intentional choices with it, hmm. the more agency they have and the more awareness they bring and the more mindful they'll be going on in the future. Because if they get in the habit of, oh, I'm just getting wound up here. I don't need to worry about this. I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And you keep doing that, it goes faster and more efficient and easier and easier and easier and faster and faster and faster. Hmm. And, and that's the skill we're, we're kind of building there with meditation. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I uh, in that presentation I mentioned the root down. I talked. I talk about. Uh, I won't g- get into the weeds on it, but but you know, a moment when I was on a hike on a walk and I was feeling really blue, just not good. And and in a moment, I started. I I questioned my thoughts and realized actually what I should be feeling is joy. Uh, and I mm-hmm. so I like. What I, I wrote a blog post about it at the time, calling it about perspective, but really now I've learned it's more about like, or I guess another word for it is reframing. And it's really like, uh, because I was being mindful of the moment and the thoughts, I was able to reframe those thoughts and realize like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on a second. This is not a sad moment. This is actually a really happy moment. And Delaney, get the hell out of your head here. <laughs> You know, think about this. And, and it, it actually did like change my mood in that moment. And it was really rewarding. That's incredible. It sounds like you gave yourself some, some compassion, uh, in that situation. That's incredible. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, as I said, yeah, it was really rewarding. This has been awesome chatting with you. How can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about what you do and get in touch? Yeah, well, anyone can visit my website, uh, just my name, MateusAshton.com, um, and you can find out what I do. I also, um, I'm starting up, uh, I've worked with ADD.org, um, but as of uh, yesterday, actually, I am moving away from them and starting my own support group soon um, in January. 
Um, it's kind of already uh, getting up and going, but uh, the first session will start being in January, and and that will be a free place for people to go and um, and get some support. Because I like I was talking about earlier about the struggles uh, that people have of being able to have access to stuff. I'm a I am a coach. I'm a trained professional. I want to be able to provide more services for that. So in uh, in January, I'll be starting a free support group that people can go to. Um, so I really want to get the word out for that. Um, mm-hmm. On top of my other services. I want I want to be able to provide help for people who have resources to to do a, a lot of different things, and also people who don't have the resources and but still need support. Um, I want to be able to provide that for that. So I'll be launching that in January. I love that, and and I'll be sure to to spread the word, and I hope uh, listeners do that too. Yeah, I'm a fan of uh, Sam Harris's work, and he's got a great. Yeah. Uh, he's actually the the person that. I don't know personally, but I've, I've been using his app with, with, uh, uh, the waking up app. But one thing that's really cool about that is it is a, a paid app. However, he always has the, the, the fine print there. And he talks about it too on his podcast is that if you can't afford it, just email them and they'll give it to you for free. And, and I like that approach to things so that, you know, yeah, so that it, it makes it accessible to, to all. When I was in counseling school, I took him up on that offer and sent him that email and did and did get that app for free for a, for a period of time. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I, yeah, I find it I find it very helpful. Um, well, this has been yeah, this has been great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah, this is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to Wise Squirrels. It has been amazing to share this with you best way to show your support for the show leave us a review follow the show and share it with the people in your life we drop new episodes every two weeks so stay tuned for that plus drop by wisequirrels.com or click the link in the podcast description and you'll find a lot of different resources like articles a an assessment a newsletter lots of good stuff over at wisequirrels.com so drop by Let me know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Take care.